Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Alberta Solicitor General and Minister of Justice Casey Madu joins us on this program. Mr. Madu has stated the government, uh, Tudor government's new firearms legislation is, quote, more interested in targeting law-abiding Canadians rather than the criminals who recklessly endanger public safety. Minister, thank you very much for coming on the program and uh, just your overall sense of this law. Uh, Thank you so much, Roy. A pleasure uh, to be able to join you this afternoon. Roy, let me say this. I was disappointed when I saw the measures in the proposed legislation put forward by the federal government. You know, Roy, I have always said that the number one responsibility of any government is to keep our citizens safe. That also includes making sure that our communities are safe from anyone that will seek to disrupt the peace and quiet that we enjoy as Canadians. And so the idea that the federal government, in these measures, have chosen to do the opposite, uh, you know, um, it, 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 I can only describe it as disappointing and something that I think that if they were serious about tackling the problems that we encounter from illegal guns, then they would have focused on the right place and not with this measure that, that they have put in place. Minister, what is it about this particular piece of legislation, C-21, that most disturbs you or uh, makes you wonder what they were thinking? Is it the granting municipalities the option through bylaws to regulate handgun possession? Obviously, that is one of the major concerns that I have with this bill, C-21. The federal government knows too well that municipalities, are a creation of the provincial government. The Constitution is very clear that municipalities are entirely within provincial jurisdiction. And the federal government has developed a habit of attempting to pitch municipalities against provincial and territorial governments across this country. I think it's important that we remind them that this has to stop. No municipalities under our legal system can pass a bylaw banning firearms or handguns without provincial consent. We were never consulted. They do not listen to us. And from nowhere, they put forward this particular bill. So that is a concern uh, for me, and that is why Alberta under my leadership as a justice minister, we put forward a bill that would prevent municipalities from exercising whatever powers that the federal government is purporting to give them. Number two, Roy, obviously, is the fact that Bill C-21 targets 
you know, uh, lawful, law-abiding gun owners. We know where the problems are coming from. Uh, Roy, it will be difficult for you to go through the data and the statistics and come to the same conclusion that the federal government has come to. The problem is not citizens whose guns are registered and we know where they are and safely stored as required by law. The problem are guns that we can't trace, guns that we don't know where they are coming from, but of course we do know that they are coming largely from the United States again, in, from places that the federal government are responsible for. How does this even make sense in the first place? So those are my disappointments, and, and that tells you that the federal government is really interested in the politics of it rather than the actual solutions that save life and protect our communities. Minister, I, I absolutely 100% agree with you. This is a political document, not a not an objective uh, piece of legislation, but you mentioned provincial legislation. Is that Bill 211 that you're talking about? So, yes, absolutely. You know, Bill 211 was introduced as a public member bill in the last legislature by my colleague, the MLA for Brooks Medicine Hat, Michaela Glasgow. Unfortunately, we could not proceed to that bill's conclusion before the last legislation and the last legislature ended. And because of Bill C-21, uh, I have now decided to expedite that particular bill and, you know, make it a, a provincial government bill rather than a private member's bill in recognition of the importance of what Bill C-21 will do. Uh, to our provincial jurisdiction and our province, province's relationship with our municipalities. You know, Roy, we are working hard across this country to build a functional relationship with our municipal leaders. We do not want policies and federal legislation that intrudes into provincial jurisdiction to the point where it creates friction between us and our municipal leaders. That is exactly what this bill will do. So I am going to put an end to that once we resume on February 25th, sometime in early March. So, Minister, would that mean then the provincial legislation or the, legislat the uh, legislation that you're putting forward, would that essentially uh, give Alberta, the province of Alberta, the right to make decisions on firearms uh, all across the board? Uh, the province would have the right and not the federal government. Do I understand it correctly? So, no, so the, the bill that we will put forward in early March would prevent municipalities from passing by laws with respect to firearms and, and, and handguns. All right. We are, obviously, firearms generally are within the purview of the federal government. Nobody is doubting that. Nobody is questioning that. It is within their constitutional right to pass measures with respect to the Firearms Act and under the criminal code of this country. The problem is the overreach. And that is also why, Roy, I, we are going to move quickly to appoint the provincial chief firearms officer. He has been in the work for some time now, again, in anticipation of these measures by the federal government. And my sense is by the end of uh, this February, uh, we would be in a position to select the chief firearms officer to be announced sometime in 
April. We will put in place that particular office in place in April so that an Alberta's government-appointed chief firearms officer would now be responsible to implement and enforce uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, firearms and, and handguns and all of those things in our province and not the federally appointed chief firearms officer. Minister, for the last question for you, why do you suppose, and I guess I have to ask you to suppose, why do you suppose the government, the federal government, is pursuing the lawful gun owner, knowing fully well these measures will do nothing or very little to stop gun crime in major urban areas, which is where their, I think their, fo- their main focus is, because those firearms are coming in, as you said, largely from the United States. Why do you suppose they're targeting the, the lawful gun owners? You know, Roy, that baffles my mind. You know, I can only, you know, guess. But um, it is a question that I have been asking myself, knowing fully well that as Alberta's chief law enforcement officer, I have not encountered problems in this province with those who, uh, who keep firearms, own firearms, and have you know, been using firearms, as far as I can remember, without any incident. They have complied with every rules out there that we have asked them to comply with. I have not encountered any problem in that particular regard. So for me, um, either the federal government um, dislike those who bear arms or have fundamental problems with with the culture, uh, the tradition, with respect to, uh, you know, um, firearms in this country. And or, again, the politics of it, which is, um, a way to speak to their, their own base, irrespective of what the science and the data shows. You know, you know Roy, they just implemented, again, they just put forward Bill C-22 that essentially removes the requirement for minimum mandatory sentences. Now, if you look at Bill C-22 and Bill C-22, you are going to come to one conclusion that the federal government is really confused about what they are doing. Or they, just, they know what they are doing, but wants to play politics with an important issue. They framed Bill C-22 as something that would, that would deal with racism and, and things like that. Far from it. None of those things would achieve the desired result. To say that to the black community where there are problems with, you know, crimes emanating from illegal Pedro Antunez is the chief economist of the Conference Board of Canada, and the Conference Board just issued a report, Challenges Ahead, Canada's Post-Pandemic Fiscal Prospects. The economic crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic will have a lasting effect on Canada's economic performance, lowering profit and labor income, the main sources of revenue for the federal and provincial and territorial governments. Mr. Antunez, thank you very much for coming on the show. And that's the very first key of the key findings in your release. Would you address, just address that, please? Yeah, well, essentially, uh, everyone knows that this pandemic was very, very costly. We've had a 
provincial and federal governments step up with massive support programs, and obviously a lot of that was very much necessary. What we're seeing, though, is that COVID-19 has, is going to have an impact on the, economics, on the economy's performance over the next few years. And so these big deficits that we're now running, yeah, still ease up a little bit in the next few years, but they're going to continue to be sizable. In other words, federal, provincial, territorial governments are going to have trouble reining in their deficits over the next few years. And so we've added so much to our, our overall debt load that this is going to be problematic, we feel, uh, over the over the medium and longer term. And we're adding another, what, $383 billion projected for 2021 in deficit? Well, that's right. And what we're trying to do with this report here is, is really look at the what you know us taxpayers are liable for, and that's both federal and provincial territorial levels of government. And if you look at that, well, yes, $385 billion to the federal government this year. The provinces together, with provinces and territories together, another $92 billion. So we're essentially taking our debt as a share of GDP, our debt as a share of income, up from 65%, uh, sorry, from 75% to 95% right off the bat. And, on, uh, and what we're seeing is that that is going to continue to increase over time. In other words, the, the problem is not really sustainable. It's not going to go away. Uh, and we need to start thinking about a little more fiscal restraint as we start thinking about the problems going, uh, uh, the situation going forward. So is this the scenario, the often talked about scenario, of the yet unborn having to pay for this? Well, uh, yes, some of them already born. Uh, those that are young in the labor market today will be in it for a long ride, we think. Uh, and the other piece that's really important here is that, you know, in the past, our fiscal anchor had to be, had been to, at the federal level, had been to maintain our debt-to-GDP ratio stable. But if you think about it, we've ratcheted it up so far that when we think longer term, we need to kind of prepare ourselves for the next crisis, hopefully a long ways out, but nonetheless... Uh, the target now should be a declining debt-to-GDP ratio. So it's going to be an additional fiscal uh, strain from where we were even prior to COVID. How much of this is affected? How much concern should there be over the fact, long-term concern, that these programs were financed through debt? Well, this is another thing that, uh, you know, we're a little worried about. There's this kind of sense that, uh, you know, all of this uh, uh, taking on of debt, these billions and billions that we've spent, uh, that it's almost as though it's a free lunch because interest rates were so, are so low right now. Uh, what we're suggesting in, in, in the report as well is that, no, interest rates are going to be climbing, even if central banks you know, maintain their target short-term rates low, there's already, in fact, uh, you know, day-to-day we're hearing about pressure on bond yields. Uh, and this is a global situation because globally we've taken on so much sovereign debt that, you know, it's going to be hard to sell bonds, government bonds, with without raising the yields a little bit. You and I aren't going to want to go out and buy a 10-year government bond that pays a percent a year. Uh, once the crisis is over, we're going to look for more. And, and I think there's going to be upward pressure on interest rates, which, which makes the financials much, much tough, tougher as we go two or three years down the road. Okay, so if we look back now to the 1990s, and, and you mentioned this in, in, in the report, uh, the federal and provincial territorial governments will see their total net debt rise to over 95% of GDP as the crisis has passed, levels last seen in the early 1990s when surging deficits led to nearly a decade of fiscal restraint. Arguably, it was a more stable reality in the 1990s than exists now. Even when COVID goes by, leaves us, we're not going to be 
uh, imbued with a sudden sense of everything's fine. Uh, is there is it a parallel today um, and and the end of COVID versus what we experienced in the nineties? Well, I think the the point we're we're making there is in the nineteen nineties uh, that that was a lot of pressure fiscally, and we saw a decade of a very severe restraint. Uh, at the federal, it started at the federal level, but then it got pushed into the provinces and, and territories, and and that lasted a decade before we kind of right-sized the, the size of debt and were able to manage. Now there was a very different situation back then than it, than there is today, and that is that interest rates were much much higher. So uh, today we have that advantage right now of being able to manage this at least short term uh, and getting through it. But the the point of the report is really let's take a, l- a look further down. Let's be a little more careful about any additional spending we may have to make. And in fact, when we talk to the provinces, often we're saying, well, you know, the federal government is is in now with support programs. Hopefully, if the vaccine is out by the middle of next year, but by the middle of this year, uh, hopefully these support programs will be enough to get us going. So we're we're just suggesting that uh, governments be a little more prudent now going forward because this is going to be a strain uh, again over the next over the coming years. And if I might, you know, when we talk about 95% of GDP, that's immediately after the 2020-2021 fiscal year. Uh, if we look two or three years down the road, we get to 100% of GDP, and by the and and it doesn't resolve itself on its own. It just keeps growing if we don't address it. Okay, final point. Uh, policymakers must start planning for the longer-term fallout from the pandemic. That means first stabilizing and then reducing the aggregate public debt-to-GDP ratio to enable the country to get through the next crisis or recession when it happens. You mentioned that. Let me ask you this. Do you see any, ev- any evidence this is this is actually happening? Well, no. In fact, uh, I think most of the uh, what we're hearing now from, from governments is that uh, the situation, they need to address the immediate situation. And, and that's very true. Uh, the point I think that's important to note, though, is that there is an awful lot of support that has been put into the system. Uh, in, in fact, 2020 is a recession year like no other in the sense that after transfers, household incomes have actually swelled this year. They've grown, or last year, they've grown quite strongly. And when we look at businesses as well, there's a lot of savings in the system. So we're hopeful that if the vaccine rollout goes as planned, that you know there's enough stimulus now in the economy that we'll be able to get it going again. And we're asking policymakers now to start thinking a little bit further down the road, start planning for what is going to be the situation, what does that look like going forward in terms of spending restraint or new revenue measures. It may very well be that we're going to need higher taxes. Mr. Antonis, thank you very much uh, for the time. I hope they're listening to you. Well, well, thank you for uh, for your interest. My pleasure. All, all the best. Uh, Conference Board of Canada report. Challenges ahead. Canada's post-pandemic fiscal pro- prospects. You can uh, go online and see it for yourself. The uh, Morneau Chappelle January 2021 Mental Health Index report. Canadians are experiencing an epidemic of extreme loneliness. So think about that. Now, we've talked about this, how people are emotionally charged and challenged because they spent so much time alone. We're social animals. doesn't work well for us. Paula Allen is the global leader, research and well-being, senior vice president at Morneau Chappelle, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show. Ms. Allen, thank you. Uh, you're, you're, you're great giving us lots of your time. I'm very happy to be here. Talk to us, please, about what you found out for January. And, uh, and I'm just reading the headline here, or the, the highlights. A negative mental health score among Canada, Canadians for the 10th consecutive month. Yeah, indicating a continued decline in mental health compared to the pre-2020 benchmarks. We're not doing so well. 
Very unfortunately not. Uh, when, at the start of the pandemic, we had a massive decline in our mental health, anxiety, depression, you know, sense of isolation, loss of optimism, a whole bunch of things were happening which were, which were not indicative of good mental health. And very unfortunately, you know, we've had a little bit of improvement, a little bit of decline, but right now, January 2021, we're essentially exactly where we were in April. No improvement from that very dire position. And you had mentioned uh, a sense of isolation, loneliness. We've actually found that that has worsened over time. So rather than, you know, adapting and, you know, reaching out to people and getting that sense of belonging in a new manner because of our new situation, we seem to be going in a negative direction and almost getting used to this, this the state of being disconnected from others, which is not good. No, it isn't, and your report also shows Canadians struggling to maintain a positive mindset and find a healthy balance or balances in their work and personal lives. So the employer comes into into, into play here as well. Could you address that? Yeah, one of the, one of the good news stories is that we we found that those employers who really put mental health at the center and have it as as, as focal point in their business continuity and their business plans their employees were doing better. So we've seen employers have all employee calls where, you know, the CEO is hand in hand with an expert, you know, speaking about the mental health impact of this, this societal situation, uh, really showing empathy and in doing so destigmatizing mental health because this is something that has been impacting everyone. So making every individual feel heard, feel validated, and also more comfortable in reaching out for support. So doing that and providing support, that has really made a meaningful difference. So that, I think, is a good news story and a wake-up call for other employers. Mm -hmm. As we look at the leaders of tomorrow, uh, the full-time post-secondary students, I read, the pandemic has presented tremendous challenges to full-time post-secondary students requiring them to adapt to a virtual learning environment, regardless of if they were equipped with the appropriate resources. And uh, that is that. talk to us about that challenge. What are the young people facing? Well, you know, when you are a post-secondary student, that's typically a pretty vulnerable time anyway. You're, it's a change, a point in, in, in life that is a change. So you're out on your own, you're thinking about your next step, your career, you know, you are, you are, and, and your financial situation isn't particularly stable in many situations. All of that, every single aspect of that vulnerability has been exacerbated by the pandemic. So that group has really been very, very hard hit. And we saw that right from the very beginning. And on top of that, the thing that really balances things, the thing that's so important for all of us, but particularly important at that time of life, is, is your social life, your social connection. You know, having that contact with, with others, you know, having that validation from others. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, post-secondary students can't have that in the same way. So really, they have been very hard hit. And actually, we've seen that continue on. You know, they've been the most hard hit, but second to them are individuals in early careers. So again, that change of life situation where there's a lot of uncertainty has really been 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 part of a negative experience for the younger younger adults. 
And looking at the challenging information, there's also an upside here, at least that there's, there's some progress, I think, being made insofar as Canadians are understanding that they're being challenged, their mental health uh, is being challenged, and they are, as you write at Morneau Chappelle, choosing to proactively prioritize their mental well-being. Yeah, that is a very, very good news point. And, and again, you know, the, the pandemic has really kind of brought into our lives things that we should have known already. I mean, there's so many things, even, even you know, how we wash our hands and, you know, how we sneeze and all the rest of that, that we're doing more of now that, that we're important always. And prioritizing your mental health was always important. But because we have, uh, we have felt this vulnerability, people have become more aware. And we've actually seen that awareness and that prioritization increase the younger you are. So the vulnerability of the of younger adults, as I've mentioned before, has led to higher awareness and better prioritization, all of which is a, a, a good news story. We're also seeing people recognize in their co-workers when things are not right. And, and that, you know, is unfortunate because, you know, things are not right for so many of us. But it is a positive thing that we are seeing that behavior change. So about a third of people are seeing things in their coworkers that give it, that's giving them some concern. And that recognition is important because then that, that allows us to pause and, con- and think about our next step. When the uh, new regulation kicks in, where if you're flying into Canada internationally, you're going to be facing quarantine mandatory hotel quarantine. And the question is, is this constitutional? Does the government have the right to do this? Let's talk to John Corpe about that. John Carpe is the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and they have launched a lawsuit against the federal government and their decision. John, thank you very much for the time. Can I just ask you to please explain briefly what the COVID testing, the mandatory hotel quarantine rules are beginning tomorrow for arriving airline passengers? What are people going to face? All returning air travelers need to be locked up in a hotel for three days because the federal government obviously does not trust people to quarantine at home. And uh, we're in a situation right now in Canada where if you are accused of murder, you have more legal rights than if you're a Canadian returning home uh, by, w- by using an airplane. Uh, the, the accused murderer... Uh, needs to be charged with a crime before getting arrested. Uh, once arrested, he has a right to counsel. Uh, once the accused person is, is locked up, they have a right to have their detention reviewed within 24 hours by a judge or justice of the peace. They enjoy a presumption that they are innocent until proven guilty, and they have a right to a fair trial before an independent judge. And returning travelers, are they have not committed any crime. They're not accused of any crime. Uh, they're not charged. They don't have a right to counsel. And once they're locked up, their detention does not go before um, a judge or justice of the peace for review. Uh, and previously, I don't know if it'll be the same going forward, uh, family members and a lawyer didn't even get to know where the, uh, where the person was locked up. This uh, is Canada, right? changing now. This is, this is Canada we're talking about. This is, we have very quickly degenerated into, you know, something on par with a repressive regime, uh, which does 
kind of lock up people without any of these rights. Well, well, if your family can't know where you are and your lawyer can't know where you are, that's a fundamental abrogation or, or violation, rather, of your constitutional democratic rights. John, the, your, your organization, the J, by the way, it's jccf.ca, jccf.ca, and they could use some contributions because they fight on behalf of Canadians. So this lawsuit that you're that you've started representing Canadians who were already involuntarily detained. So what did they face? And can you just give us the fundamentals and the basics of the lawsuit? Sure. So Nikki Mathis is uh, one of our clients. She lives in Edmonton. She was on a trip down to uh, Texas. She had some business to take care of there. She came back and uh, she had a negative COVID test, but the uh, government said it wasn't the right one. She was forced to go into a white van with uh, tinted uh, uh, windows, and um, uh, she was not allowed to tell her husband where she was or where she was going, and she was locked up. And uh, now, fortunately, she she left her cell phone on, and uh, <clears throat> I'm not much of a technology guy, but the gist of it was that her husband was able to find out where she was being taken to uh, because they had, you know, activated the whatever the the locator device on on the cell phone, <laughs> and this is like, you know, if people talk about hotels. Well, yeah, you know, a hotel can be a nice place when you choose to go there voluntarily and when you can leave whenever you please. Uh, but once you get forced to to be locked up there, um, then it, it's effectively it is a prison, and um, we we've had media accounts for numerous people that have just suffered, um, you know, lack of medical treatment. Uh, the CBC reported on a guy who had a serious issue with uh, with one of his toes and was repeatedly refused medical treatment uh, until he threatened to call 911, and then they finally allowed him to go to, to the hospital, and it, it was fairly serious. He needed the whole uh, uh, toenail removed. So amongst our clients are people that have been uh, illegally detained in violation of their charter rights, but we're also representing a lot of snowbirds, um, one man who had to go to Algeria to um, attend the the, um, funeral of his father who had passed away. Uh, So our, our clients also include people that are terrified of coming back home. Well, I just read an email just 10 minutes ago. On that very issue, and I just read a little piece of it uh, before I spoke with you. So, what what's the what's the most fundamental aspect of the lawsuit? What are you what are you charging? What are you challenging? Two things. One is we're seeking a declaration that the people who have been detained, that their charter rights and freedoms were unjustifiably violated. Uh, that's one key point. And the second aspect is to uh, ask a court to strike down the current policies. Because the federal government, and by the way, governments are entitled to violate charter rights and freedoms if it's uh, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Yes. And that's a very high onus that the government has to meet. So governments can violate all kinds of rights and freedoms, our, our freedom of speech, uh, religion, association, assembly, our charter rights not to be arbitrarily detained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but the government has to come up with a really good reason and here the situation is that there's no evidence that the returning travelers have posed or are posing a threat to public health. There's no evidence that the government has put forward. There's no evidence linking international travelers to the deaths in nursing homes, 
which is where you've got 80% of deaths are in long-term care of, uh, facilities. Right. And there's no evidence that uh, having people quarantine at home, that that was somehow not working. There was already so, John, in the, in, I, I hate to do this. I mean, it's just one of those days where everything's compressed as far as the time is concerned. When are you next in court? When are you going to be in court? Um, Virtually. Be, the... the the dates will be set in the weeks ahead, okay. and um, I would anticipate that we, the judge will hear an application for an interim injunction, right. which is temporary injunction, because the, the action, unfortunately... Yeah. John, I'm sorry. I've, I've just run out of time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.